all bad things. Tragedy. Tragedies, disasters. That's bad things. Trigger warning for everything possible. What? <laughs> I'm Rachel. And I'm David. And this is All Bad Things. Welcome, everybody. Welcome. To this auspicious occasion of our 300th episode. No, no, no. I think, I think what we need to do, you know, I think it's only right <laughs> on this, um, this very special occasion, you know, you know what patriots we are. Okay. So we must. Oh, yeah. Twilight's last gleaming, whose broad stripes and bright stars were so gallantly <laughs> there. Do you guys hear that? As the rockets were there, uh, and the twilight's last gleaming, and the rockets glare and glare. Oh, no. So no. <laughs> oh, it's not. It's over. It's all there. Stripes were all there. <laughs> and the were there. I mean, you gotta, you gotta. He did not. His... He did not lose the rhythm of the song at all. But no, no, he did not. But everybody in that stadium was confused for a solid thirty seconds, being like, "Wait, is this? Is this like a new one? Is this? Is, is this BLM?" <laughs> Have they sabotaged the anthem? It's BLM and Antifa. They're behind this. You know somebody thought that. You know somebody put that on Twitter. Most likely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So. 300. <clears throat> 300. It's, I mean, I'm way too tired to be excited about it. <laughs> you know what? That's fine. It's fine. I'm, it's I'm, all fine. Uh, and. I'm just coming home about an hour and a half earlier from my 10th straight day of work, so. Yeah. And I worked Happy all... 300th. <laughs> I worked all day and had a gig. Yes. But we need to rack up some episodes. <laughs> yes, we do. Yes, we do. We've got some... Uh, I'll be in St. Louis for a work training. Mm-hmm. Not I'll be you, joining but me. in... <laughs> I meant mm-hmm, as uh, in, uh-huh. like, you're the one. But I will I will join you for a weekend. Yes, in, in Missouri. Missouri. Um, the, for the, work the, training. The city of my birthright. Yes, exactly. Our birth name. <laughs> did I say birthright? I did. <laughs> that's right. You do own I'm the gonna, city. I am going to walk Louis. around there like with my head high and be like, that's Mr. St. Louis to you. <laughs> it's true. They call me <laughs> Mr. St. Louis. <laughs> no, really, because that's my name. Yeah. <laughs> um, follow us. It's to Twitter, Facebook, TikTok, Twitch. All that at all bad things pod emails. You'd think that we'd have that down better after 300 episodes, but no, that's not how we work. Uh, <laughs> all bad it's things a nice pod. surprise every time. There we go. Uh, email us all bad things pod at gmail.com. Join our Facebook discussion group and our Discord. Do all of those things. Yes. In that particular order. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, unreal. I mean, mm-hmm. happy, happy 300th. Cheers, indeed. <laughs> Never. 300. Never would have guessed that when this whole thing began. Nope. Nope. I'm also, so, um, there's been a little bit of speculation, and by a little bit, I mean 
um, our friend and script contributor Nicole has speculated oh, okay. <laughs> about what we'll be doing as our uh, as our three hundredth episode, and I threw her off, understandably so, by saying that I was doing the research, even though I, I won the bet. And it should have been your research, but you were willing to do it. I just usurped it. You did usurp it. And not only did I lose the bet, but you're doing the research. The bet was for you also to get a new car, which you're also considering. So, <laughs> yes. So, as Basically, the. Basically, uh, you won all the stuff in the bet, <laughs> even though you lost the bet. As the uh, late. Well, no, he's not dead, I don't think. As the great <laughs> Charlie Sheen once said, I'm by winning. <laughs> I win here, I win there. <laughs> I forgot about <laughs> by winning. It started out as he said, he's like, I'm winning. And then later on in the interview, right. the interviewer literally asked him, he's like, do you think you're bipolar? And he goes, I'm, I'm by winning. winning. <laughs> I remember that. Oh, my God. I'm like, those are po- quite possibly the greatest words ever, like, put together. Like, those are this tiger's winning. blood or whatever. That was that whole thing, thing yeah. yeah. Where he went nuts Man. for all of our entertainment. Anyone who's, like, under 30 probably doesn't. No, or maybe that's, uh, no, I'm, that, under that's 25. probably. I'm gonna guess that's got a hundred million views views on YouTube. I could be wrong. I mean, but as like a vintage clip at this point, because that was what early 2000s. <sighs> no, not 2010. Was it that late? I think so. Hmm. 2009, maybe. In there, in there, yeah, because I was working at Tiernanog when that whole thing was going okay. on. Okay. Because that's all anybody said to each oh, other yeah. for like it a was month. Oh, so, such a viral situation, <laughs> yeah. So like, hey, like, hey, Chad, how's it going? I'm winning. <laughs> oh, winning? <laughs> yeah, that was, a, that was a whole thing for a while. So, yes, I, I became the, uh, the literal interpretation of that. I'm mm-hmm. by winning. By, you are by winning. I lost the bet, but somehow won two bets. Yes. Mm-hmm. Pretty much. Pretty much. Too much. Um, so, uh, clearly I just haven't said what we're covering. You can see it on the feed, but we are entering our Challenger trilogy. Mm-hmm. So, it's just going to be three. Um, but we are going to go ahead and move forward with this behemoth of a topic. Yeah. Um, so, I'm... Oh, three parts. <coughs> right? Um, and I'm calling this one... Part one, the ultimate field trip. Okay. And we'll get to why in the next episode. Sure. So um, I'm sure we'll have plenty to interject. This is very much in our generational wheelhouses, right? Especially yours, mm-hmm. actually. So on January 28th, 1986, the U.S. Space Shuttle Challenger exploded shortly after launch in front of an international television audience of millions, killing all seven people on board. And this incident is often described as a defining moment in the lives of those who witnessed it. It sure. is one of those, like, you know where you were, yep. right, moments, right? There's, like, the Kennedy assassination, the Berlin Wall. Yeah, th- this would, the, this know, would not be stuff. for you, though, because you were just over a year old. That is exactly <laughs> right, and we'll get into that a little bit next episode, too. But, um, but it was for me, for sure. Yeah. Yes, I was one. Mm-hmm. I just, I had <laughs> was just, one at the time. I was I, 13 months old. I had just turned nine. <laughs> I was about to be double digits the, the next year. <laughs> I, was, I was moving on up in the world. I, I know we'll talk, you know, either in this episode or next episode about, like, your recollections of this incident and everything. Because you have mentioned it. But um, do, do you remember, like, your ninth birthday? That, that would have been really... No. 
it would have been recent. It would have been literally. Yeah, yeah, I was gonna say literally would have been like yeah. Yeah. But uh, do you specifically not, remember that birthday or anything? Not really. Or, yeah. I don't really remember now that you like bring it up. I don't, I'm not really sure if I remember any like birthday parties at this point. Really? Yeah. I think I only had them until I was like nine or ten, something like that. And then it becomes like you hang out with your friends or something. Yeah, kind of yeah. like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I get that. Um, but yeah, this my generation's version of this was nine eleven. That's my opinion. Sure. Um, that, that was just compounded for us. Was <laughs> like that was the next thing. Right. It was the next. Well, even and even uh, in between that, thing. Yes. and even mm-hmm. in between that was Oklahoma City. Like that was the. Mm-hmm. That was like the reigning terrorist attack for a while, and, yeah. and until nine eleven, unfortunately. Right. Well, and Waco happened when you were old enough to mm-hmm. remember it, and yep. like there was. I started watching the new Netflix. Oh, did you? Yeah. Okay. It's pretty good. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I didn't follow it too much when it was going on yeah. i just remember the first thing i remember about the waco thing was when the house got set on fire yeah like before that i just kind of knew it was happening i didn't know that mm-hmm. uh, four agents were killed like i didn't know any of that stuff until i mm-hmm. listened to the um uh, last podcast last podcast mm-hmm. when they did it mm-hmm. i was like oh yeah like people actually died well a lot of people yeah a ton including yeah. children yeah. yeah no but i mean in the gunfight a lot of people oh, died oh, on I both gotcha. sides mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. yeah i'm like yeah that's pretty nuts that this happened yeah and it didn't need to no that's another thing yeah <laughs> um so primary sources for this like just assume chat gpt along with wikipedia moving forward uh biography citizens in space cnn heavy nasa smithsonian magazine thought co washington post wikipedia yahoo news uh, chat gpt obviously so the reason i'm sort of like not like ooh we're covering the challenger but just sort of like yeah we're we're doing challenger is because i actually find this harder than the titanic to cover because it, it it's not that it's like somehow worse than other disasters that we've covered, but this is the disaster with the most coverage. You know, there's video. There's not video of the Titanic sinking. There's not. James Cameron's film was not a documentary. <laughs> I would say there's um, been more coverage of 9-11, but yeah, uh, yes. until 9-11. Now, but yeah. now, by our definitions, that we wouldn't cover that, right? No. Quote, unquote, disaster. I get it. It's, oh, no. Uh-oh. <laughs> and we're back after a spillage. If anyone wants our authentically sparkling cherry limeade and gin stained script of the <laughs> you, Challenger, you, you, know, you, you know can get it. You know how to reach it. out to us. <laughs> you can have it. Oops, yeah. I missed this part. Alrighty. So, um, yes, 9-11, I would agree, has way more coverage, way more videos, all that stuff. Um, but we would not cover it due to our definitions, we you know, of what we do cover. So this is up there. It is. You know, it, because of its modernity mm-hmm. and um, its Americanness. you know, we, we are American. Blech. Um so that is what it is. And the legacy of Challenger has easily lasted the past 36 years. 37, why did I say 36? That's 37, isn't it? Am I doing my math? I'm doing my math wrong. It is 37. 37 years. Jeez. Yeah, I know. And will likely endure for the foreseeable future because of its emotional and mental imprint, i.e. trauma, on the minds of millions of people who witnessed its live broadcast, many of whom 
were children yeah. at the time <laughs> yeah. and who are now in their middle age. So this is like a defining moment for people who are in their prime right now, right? Um, so I don't know that there's anything unique left to say about Probably Challenger. Not. We watched the Netflix documentary. Mm-hmm. You know, it was great. Highly recommend it. Um, so I'm just going to do my best. I'm going to tell this story over three episodes, three-act structure, the setup, the disaster, the aftermath. This will not be the most comprehensive, intelligent, or well-researched coverage of the Challenger, but I certainly hope it to be the most anti-capitalist and anti-Reagan. <clears throat> so. And at an angle, you don't get too much from the Challenger. <laughs> um, did you know that, so we did the Space Shuttle Columbia, right? Mm-hmm. That was one of our first 10, something like it, that. We put it out in August 2017. Oh my God. I know. <laughs> we just gotten, no, we're, we're, we're it was yeah. like episode six or something. Yeah. Something mm-hmm. like that. Yeah, because we released three episodes at once the first yes. uh-huh. time, so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was telling my mom that we were, I was going to do Challenger oh, yeah. for the 300th August episode. 2017. <laughs> that we were going to do Challenger for the 300th episode, and she's like, 300? Well, well, you don't just put out one a week then. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. we do, actually. <laughs> That's how you get to 300. <laughs> yes, and uh, yes, we have been doing it for almost six years. <laughs> so, my mom's not a listener, clearly. <laughs> Um, hey, we're, we are nothing if if not consistent. <laughs> so I was going to look back at my, you know, my Word document of the uh, of Columbia to like brush up on like the space shuttle program and stuff. I didn't have the Word document. Uh-huh. I don't know if I didn't save it or what. I we still have those scripts physically in a notebook right this down there. Here. So if anyone wants it, still up for grabs. I I really did my research a lot differently than that. Wasn't it was like bullet points? I didn't really write it as a script. It was just funny. A lot of things that's changed over six years. Um, So some of what I'll be putting in here will kind of be a little bit of a refresher on that because we have covered the history of NASA, the history Mm -hmm. of the shuttle program in previous episodes. Right? We've done a bunch of aeronautical disasters. We've covered aerospace disasters. We've covered the history of Apollo. We've covered the history of Gemini. Because um, Gemini Soyuz. was part of uh, the. Uh... We've talked about Gemini, Mercury, mm-hmm. Apollo, Soyuz. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We've, yeah. We've we've delved into space quite a bit in, in all facets of it. Right now, I had to look it up, except for the physics, maybe. Oh well, yeah. <laughs> <But> we're not. <laughs> yeah. Unless ChatGPT can dumb yeah. it down for me now. Um, you know, ChatGPT, like you can ask it to explain to you, like you're a five year old, and it literally will. It's great. Interesting. <laughs> yes. Um, it will surely one day, you know, be like Hal and take, rule, kill us, us all, all, but, you know, whatever. In the meantime. In the meantime, it's fun. Um, uh, so the history of the space shuttle really goes back to the history of NASA. I'm not going to belabor the history of NASA. I know I've gone into that. Um so I'm just kind of going to pick it up specifically at the concept of the shuttle. What was so revolutionary about it was... It could leave into outer space and come back. Exactly. It was reusable. Mm-hmm. It was a reusable spacecraft. Remember all of the um, like the Apollos and stuff, they burned and jettisoned half of it, and the thing that came down you, was like just a little capsule. Right, when you came back, yeah, you were coming back in something way different than what you went up in. And you were splashing down in the middle of an ocean. Yeah. These 
astronauts were literally landing on a runway at Kennedy Space yeah. Center, the exact same place they came. <laughs> and they were they, they left. Like earlier, they were in outer space, mm-hmm. which is just nuts. Like twenty minutes earlier, yeah. or whatever. I don't know the actual timing. It's but... like we we literally came back in the vehicle we left with. <clears throat> right. <laughs> well, yes. Not in every case, is not NASA's the rocket mystery? boosters no. and all that. No. But yeah. Or sometimes the shuttle itself. Well, yeah. In two cases. Yes. Indeed. We already covered the second, mm-hmm. going back to the first here. So this is, what they're aiming for is a reusable low Earth orbit spacecraft. We definitely got into low Earth orbit yes, and what have. that is in the Columbia mm-hmm. disaster. So listen to that if you want. Um, the first Which person. Is where most spacecraft go. They don't go much further than that unless they're going to A low Earth orbit. Yeah, yeah. Either they're going to the moon. Mm-hmm. Or, or with deep people. into space. This is manned spacecraft. Yeah. Manned spacecraft isn't going any further than low Earth orbit. Well, the moon, the Artemis project is even going no, back I'm to the moon. No, I'm just meaning but... lately. Yeah. That's yeah. kind of well, where uh, everybody's hanging out. You know, there's still the idea we'll go to Mars one day, all that stuff. But yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, the ISS, the International Space Station, is in low Earth orbit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, it says low, it. but it's like, yeah. <laughs> so, you say low, but it's not. It's, it's miles, not. miles, 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 miles away. No. It's low in... Uh, in relative terms. Right, exactly. So the first person to formally propose reusable spacecraft at NASA was an engineer ma- named Maxime Faget. So Faget had major NASA cred because he helped design the Mercury spacecraft. So that was like sure. one of the early series of vessels conceptualized in the 50s <coughs> during the space race. Space race. <laughs> space race. And designed in the late 50s and early 60s. Then Mercury was replaced by the Gemini and Apollo series, and Faget also worked on that. Now, there were some reusable craft that were being worked on around this time, including, and this is my favorite thing ever, because I love that smart nerds have puns too, there was the X-20 Dynasaur, D-Y-N-A-S-O-A-R. It sounds like I came up with it. It does. A little bit. (laughs) You and Sarah for sure. (laughs) Well, I'm I'm punnier than she is. True. She's she's funnier than I am, but I'm punnier. (laughs) Um, But the idea of this sort of reusable craft got pushed out by the Gemini Gemini series, right? They were trying to get to the moon. And Gemini and Mercury and Apollo were the series Mm -hmm. that, you know, got got everybody The programs. Right. Mm Mm-hmm. So after sitting on the shelf for a few years, the idea of this reusable spacecraft was picked back up by NASA in the late 60s, even before the moon landing. So as the Apollo program entered its... I, I wouldn't doubt if they had considered something like that for the moon landing. You know what I mean? Oh, but yeah. They were just yeah, like, maybe. Oh, we can't use it on this, but maybe... Maybe unsure of the application, mm-hmm. the exact application of it, yeah. But maybe we'll shelve that one for now and get back to it when we have some... Better technology. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so as the Apollo program entered its heyday, NASA was already looking toward what was next. I mean, that's kind of the whole point, right? Mm-hmm. They had narrowed down what they were going to do next to four possible goals. One, just keep doing lunar missions, which they did for a little bit, right? But even then it got kind of for like, like... three or four years, and then it was yeah. just... Well, very expensive. Yes. And like, well, and what got, are we really accomplishing and here? And became less and less... And harder to sell to the American public, which is right. a big part of NASA. Sure it is. 
Um, another idea was a human mission to Mars, which we have flirted with forever and still haven't achieved. It's been but on our minds for a long time. Yes. So somebody <coughs> at some point is going to figure it out. Like, I, yeah. I really Oh, wouldn't... yeah, I, I agree. It will happen at some point. I really wouldn't be surprised if it happens in, like, the next 50 years. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, another idea was a low Earth orbit program. So not going into, like, outer, outer space, but uh, doing stuff closer to Earth. Space Station's a perfect example of that. Yeah. And we're on our second. There was one before this. Yeah. And so we're talking about, like, 1,200 miles away from yeah. Earth, so like 1,900 kilometers. It's not like an easy, it's not like you can just get a ticket and go there. <laughs> <laughs> like, you have to... Well! <laughs> you have to, well, that's true, true. <laughs> you can now. <laughs> yes, you can now, if you have a billion dollars. Yeah. A billion dollars. Billions and billions. Um, and then another thing they were thinking of is literally just stopping sending people into space. Period. Yeah, I, I mean, mean... that's always on the table, right? Sure. Uh, so they... But, but, the, but the astronauts train to go to space, so they probably well, want to go. Oh, of course, the astronauts do, but yeah. this is NASA's mission, right? Yeah, like, what true. is best served, you know, in, in our mission? And, I mean, they are... But, you know, just because they they potentially wouldn't send humans into space doesn't mean they wouldn't send satellites, you know, other... Well, sure. Rovers, sure. all that stuff, right? So, um, <laughs> they took those options... And presented them to the National Aeronautics and Space Council, yeah. chaired by none other than future disgraced Vice President Spiro Agnew. Oh, how about that? <laughs> they recommended low Earth orbit, with its dual goals of building a space station and developing a space shuttle. Oh, and spying. <laughs> well. That's definitely what he had on his mind, too. Uh, Nixon agreed. <laughs> And NASA decided to start with the shuttle, mm-hmm. which could then help the second mis- mission of building the space station, you know, getting the shuttle to, to get to the station. Um, so we have uh, Spiro Agnew and Richard Nixon to thank for the challenger. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Nixon. <laughs> Thanks, Thanks, Obama. Nixon. <laughs> <So> Obama. <laughs> it took around a decade for the concept and eventual design to pay off with the space shuttle that would become NASA's fleet of five. I asked you this before. Can you name the five? So we have uh, Columbia, Challenger, uh, Atlantis. Um, I named four the other day. You I asked know. me this the other day. Atlantis. I, no, I can't remember. Discovery you had before. <sighs> yeah. An endeavor. Endeavor. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That one I always forget. <laughs> yeah. Uh, So these were the five shuttles that were used over the course of three decades, starting with the first flight of, do you know which was the first? Which one was the OG? Was it the Discovery? Mm Mm-mm. No? It was Columbia. Oh, okay. On April 12th, 1981, and ending with the last flight of... You, you're down to three, right? You know which... <laughs> there's yeah, only three. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm going to say... Uh, was it Endeavor? Good guess, but it was Atlantis. Damn. On July 8th, 2011. <laughs> so back <coughs> when I researched the Columbia disaster, I read in the script, I wrote that NASA's shuttles, quote, look more like planes than what you would think of as a rocket or shuttle, sure. end quote. Now, a few months ago... I visited Kennedy Space Center uh, and saw the space shuttle Atlantis up close and personal because it is on display there. So now 
I know what they look like, and yes, I can confirm they look more like planes than spaceships. Also, they look fake. (laughs) 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 Or at least I thought they thought it was a model. I thought it was fake. Uh, Not fake. Not fake. Thank you, Nicole, for pointing out on the Facebook group. So I was I was at literally at the Kennedy Space Center. Saw what I thought was like this cheesy model of the Atlantis, like barely glanced at it. And here I am posting on our Facebook group, oh, it's Kennedy Space Center, whatever, whatever. And I'm like, I think Nicole said like, oh, did you see the space shuttle? I was like, no, it's not here. Just a model. (laughs) Nicole was like, that's not a model. Wait, no. (laughs) So then I went back and got pictures. There you go. It still looked fake. I'm sorry. Like, not to insult, like, billions of very intelligent people hours. Well, I'm sure. Be, put in. I'm sure they had it on display so it was cleaned. It was all, you know. The, of there course, wasn't, of you course, know, yes. You couldn't uh-huh. tell that it had been to space and back, you know, however many times. It's just so odd looking to me. Like, the underbelly of it does kind of look like a plane and the underbelly of of it Looks, it's all those thermal tiles, and right? And the underbelly is black. Yeah, it's like yeah. and it's like so scales. It's, so it, I bet it's hanging really up, weird. hanging up the way it does, it looks it looks like because it kind of is. It's two toned. Yeah, is, or like a. It almost reminded me of like a manta ray in a weird way. Yeah, it was something like that. Yeah. yeah, we still need to get you down there so you can see it. And, and the Saturn V rocket too, because they have that whole thing in display. And you really get a sense of how big it is. It's it's really wild, but. Um, now, of course, we know now, and they didn't know this in, you know, 1981, when they launched Columbia for the first time, we know now that two out of these five shuttles are no longer in existence. Or they are, but they are in literal bits and pieces, right? Yeah. They didn't, they didn't get the chance to be retired. Yeah. Uh-huh. The other three did, and they're all on display. Mm-hmm. I think they're all on display. Anyway, uh, it's unnerving to think that 40% of these shuttles were demolished. That's true. If you want to put it that way, sure. Right. But... It's better to go off the number of flights. Well, okay. So there was a total of 135 missions that led... Two of which resulted in full fatalities. That's a fatality rate of about one and a half percent. Which, going to outer space, you will take that. It's not the worst, right? Based on... It is... Un- you have... You have... Your odds are worse... Being out on the highway. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I don't know what the actual death... Cha- I, I don't think we're... I don't know. I don't think I want to know. I don't think I want to know either. <laughs> At any rate... <laughs> that's, um, why, that's why we've rarely <laughs> done car accidents. Right. Um. So, so yeah, basically, s- space travel is an inherently dangerous... You ready? Endeavor. Um, <laughs> but the sad irony is, of course... It's not the dangers of space that killed the Challenger or mm-hmm. Columbia crews. Or anybody except three Russian guys. That's in it. space, right. They are the mm-hmm. only people mm-hmm. to die in space. Challenger was the, the first American astronauts to die during a flight, yes. right? I mean, they didn't get far. No. Comparatively. The other ones, unfortunately, died on a launching pad. The, the fire. The oh, Apollo yes. One. No, they, that was on a launch. Or, you're no, right. It was in it a was, simulator, like the uh, training right. thing. That's and right. they died horribly. Yes, they did. That was, uh, go back and listen to our episode if you want. It's, it's That that was terrible. That was absolutely <laughs> awful. Um, and a, a spoiler alert and trigger warning for next week. We're going to, I want, 
I'm doing the thing that I've always wished that, like, these documentaries would do. Like, please get into what happened to these people. Yeah. Which is not entirely known, which we'll get to, but, you know, we're going to try and piece it together a little bit, um, which is maybe a poor way, poor warning. But anyway. I did not pick up on that, but uh, um, it's okay. So Challenger was the second of the five space shuttles to launch after Columbia. So the two oldest shuttles are the ones that, that ended didn't up. Didn't make it back. Yeah, mm-hmm. eventually. So, in fact, Columbia was all by its little lonesome for a couple of years, flying five successful missions prior to the maiden voyage of Challenger. Um, but interestingly, Columbia was not the first space shuttle built. We know they go through all of these prototypes and test articles and all this stuff. Um, So the the first space shuttle built was the space shuttle Enterprise. Okay. A spacecraft used for test flights before the real thing was constructed. So, like, Enterprise was basically the step-sibling of the shuttle fleet, right? Enterprise was also originally intended to be retrofitted and converted into the fleet's second shuttle. So if things had worked out differently, we may not have had a Challenger. We may have had an Enterprise, or maybe they would have renamed it. I don't know how they do it. Um, And if you think that Enterprise is maybe a little on the nose of a name, considering Star Trek, you know, the USS Enterprise or or SS Enterprise. Oh, well, well, now, right? But (laughs) Star Trek was still big in the 80s, you know. Um, Well, you're absolutely correct. The Enterprise was originally supposed to be named the much more patriotic, but a lot more boring, Constitution. Because it was unveiled on Constitution Day, Mm. September 17th, 1976. This is the Bicentennial era, era, right? It's also, like, too on the nose of, like, trying to bring freedom to space. It's like there's a. It's like, dude, it's space. free enterprise it's like, to space. It's like, guys, there's nothing to claim. It's space. Like it's endless. If we could hey, plant our flag on space junk, <laughs> yeah. we would. You know. It's probably already been done. We're just not sure of it. Yet. <laughs> yeah. So they were gonna name it the Constitution, and then no oh, joke. Not terrible. The Trekkies started a coordinated letter campaign to President Gerald Ford at the time. <laughs> Saying, we don't want it, I, I put Endeavor here, we want it called Endeavor, no. They, they wanted it called Enterprise. They sent strongly worded letters <laughs> to President Ford. And it worked. Yeah. That's the irony, right? I know, right? Hey. I mean, I don't know that Ford was known for his backbone, but... He probably um, doesn't even remember. <laughs> exactly. I'm sure that these got intercepted by like a, he's a dead, staff surely. member. He, he's yeah, dead, surely. He's dead. Yeah, I think yes, so. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah, a staff member took care of this. They're like, hey, it was... The White House made a statement calling the Trekkies, quote, one of the most dedicated constituencies in the country, and no, quote. You have no idea. Basically, Trekkies are like as powerful as uh, unions or something. Yeah, they can be. Yeah. <laughs> they, maybe if, um, like, fandoms started doing, like, coordinating, you know, like, better gun control, stuff like that. Maybe shit would actually get done. Maybe. Sick the nerds on them. You know, because nerds are good at getting shit done, frankly, so. Um, so, yeah, even the White House has acknowledged that fandom is not something to be trifled with. 
After Columbia became the first shuttle in space, there were, of course, lessons learned about how the shuttle design did and didn't work. And as they did, they should, NASA made design changes. Specifically and most significantly, they used fewer thermal protection tiles and lightened up the shuttle by about a thousand kilograms or 2,200 pounds. So these design changes made retrofitting the Enterprise as the second shuttle. So that was the original plan, right? A lot more expensive. Mm -hmm. It actually made it less feasible. The agency decided it was cheaper to scrap the plans for Enterprise altogether and instead to retrofit STA-099, which was an incomplete structural test article, STA, which is like basically a full-scale component of a complete design made for testing purposes only. So instead of making the entire shuttle, for example, it would just be a part of it at scale used for testing. Uh, so the STA-099, which was completed in 1978, was turned around the next year, 1979, to be reconnoitered to become Challenger, which took a few years, took about three years. So Challenger was delivered to Kennedy Space Center in July 1982 and had its first flight on April 4th, 1983, uh, becoming the second shuttle in space. And the reusable part of the shuttles was certainly put to the test, especially in Challenger. It flew three missions a year for three straight years from 1983 to 1985. And actually, I'm going to have to say that I have to correct myself. Not exactly. Col- uh, or no, 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 that was Columbia. Never mind. I'm getting my shuttles mixed up. That is correct. So. Don't, don't we all? Yes. <laughs> it was the 10th mission, of course. That would live in infamy. So it, it, now here's where we're going to get to the capitalism part. (laughs) It really struck me how much everything in a capitalist economy does eventually come back around to capitalism, regardless of how ostensibly non-commercially motivated it seems. NASA is zero exception to this, right? The agency itself was born from direct competition (laughs) against communism during the Cold War era. And apparently any hint of communism or socialism was so against the American ethos that we were willing to just literally forgive Nazis (laughs) so they could help us win the space race, which for all intents and purposes was like a proxy war to the Cold War. You know, the space race was. Um... Though it was perhaps the proxy war with the lowest body count, though that body count was not zero. was not. Yeah. Uh, Then we won the space race, and so we beat those commie bastards to to the moon, right? We did. So now what for NASA, right? Like, you gotta... You gotta keep the public interest Exactly. Exactly. You still have to sell yourself. Yeah. And it's not... Because you are a federal agency. Exactly. It's not just the American public. It's the American Congress that, you know, sets the budget that needs to be persuaded, too. Um, So, in the era of the space shuttle, as Challenger began its life, this unstoppable capitalistic train met its supreme conductor in late 1980 when former actor... And genuine motherfucker, Ronald Reagan, was elected president. 
Reagan's best quality is, of course, that he is now dead. <laughs> Unfortunately for literally everyone alive back then or since, he was that he was not dead. He was not. <laughs> in 1980 or in 1984. So in the second half of that year, nearing the end of or the second back end of 1984, Challenger was, you know, at work in the shuttle fleet. An election season was in full swing in the U.S. with the incumbent son-of-a-bitch-in-chief, Reagan, up against Challenger. Also Mondale. You got it. They won a state. (laughs) Is it like one of the worst losses in presidential history? I believe it's the worst. Mm. Pretty sure it is. Man. I believe he won his home state and that was it. What was his home state? I don't remember. All I know is that... Was it Missouri? I think it was. Oh, okay. Something like that. All I know is that in succession... Uh, when you pointed Tom that out... Tom and Shiv have their dog's name is Mondale. When you pointed that out, I'm like, I'm like, I bet there are so many people who have no idea what Mondale is a reference to. <laughs> right. And I yeah. barely remember it because this is the first mm-hmm. presidential election I remember because we were all voting for Reagan. Because <laughs> I was seven and didn't know any better. What, did your parents back Reagan? No, my parents didn't. I mean, my no. parents did. I don't know. They're conservative. So. But no, I, I'm pretty sure I voted for Reagan in 1984 when my vote counted. Oh, the, with the little uh, mock elections that <laughs> yeah, they do in school? Yeah. Or did in schools. I don't know if they still do. You, you mean before they started collecting them and putting them in with the actual <laughs> ballots? <laughs> but yeah, Mondale. Mondale. Like the most forgettable... Presidential candidate? Uh, yeah, runner-up, possibly ever. <laughs> I mean, really. Yeah. <laughs> so election campaigns are ad campaigns, right? Of course. And Reagan, oh, yes, Reagan and NASA bonded to form a mutually beneficial advertising campaign. Sure. Called the Teachers in Space Project or TISP, because you cannot throw a rock in government. Without hitting an acronym. (laughs) That's how it works. I can confirm that. So the goal of TISP was, supposedly, to engage the American public in the space shuttle program by integrating a civilian teacher into the, a private citizen, Mm -hmm. right, into the crew of a space shuttle mission. A non-astronaut. Right, but not just a non-astronaut, a Mm non-governmental governmentally affiliated federal government. I mean, some teachers work for counties or whatever, but, um, but yeah, that was the idea. Now, given where space tourism is now, you can see that this was a smart move. The idea of opening up space travel to people other than fully trained and career astronauts. Mm -hmm. Um, we've also opened, uh, Congress too. <laughs> non fully trained uh, politicians. But anyway, as we've discussed in previous episodes surrounding space disasters, astronauts tend to be truly astoundingly intelligent, talented, and driven people. Yeah. We'll talk about that in a little bit. They're ridiculous. Yeah. In other words, they're a, an extreme minority of people um, in any population. They're, they're the exception to the exception. Right. Exactly. They're like the best of the best. Yes. Of the best. The right stuff, right? The best of the best, too. <laughs> mm-hmm. They get whittled down from the best. Yeah. No, I was I was commenting on a B-movie series back in the day. Oh, I'm sorry. Best know. of the best. And then there was a best of the best, too, uh, starring one uh, Eric Roberts. What was the worst of the best of the best movies? I think 
Probably the third one. Well, it was the best of the best of the best. I honestly think the second one. <laughs> really. Love that you would answer the, for all the, that. No, the sequel was pretty good. Best of the best two was pretty good. All right then. I mean, best of the best was very good in its own right, but I thought so. The best sequel... in the best, best of the best was oh. good, but best of the best two was the best, and best of the best three was the worst. I think so. Who's on first? <laughs> anyway, <laughs> you know what I was going <laughs> yes, into, right? Yes. Okay. Anyway, <laughs> um, so you know, this is like if you want to be an astronaut. Especially at this point, like without you, you know, you just buy a ticket on Elon's for, for starters. Penis, you, you have to space be penis. very good at physics. Well, you have to be a lot of things. Yeah, um, no, I was just saying, like, that's st- like starting entry of like fifty-five thousand things you need. Right. Um, so when they started like coming up with this idea of what if just not literally anybody at that time they weren't really talking about tourism, but what if there was a chance to go on a space mission, but you didn't have to be an astronaut? That would be sure. really appealing to, apparently there are millions of people in the world who think that going into space for fun is a good idea. I'm not I'm one not of them. I'm not one. No, I'm not doing uh, that. <laughs> but I guess there are people like that. So there you go. Um, so in 1983, Sally Ride became the first sure. wo- American woman ever in space. There were... Uh, USSR ladies way before that, like two decades before that. But NASA organized a task force to consider how civilians might be integrated into space travel. The more noble reason for wanting a non-astronaut in space was to get like a non-science, an everyman sort of ideas perspective on what it's like to be in space. So in other words... We've heard from all the nerds in the room. How about one of the theater kids gets to go up and, like, describe things poetically? In fact, NASA initially was thinking of sending someone in the field of literature, right? Because the idea was they could be trusted to write a good description of what it was like. The idea is theater of mind. Yes. Like, if we can hire somebody that can describe it like nobody else can, Mm -hmm. you know, an an author, a painter. Right. Uh Uh-huh. A poet, yeah, yeah anything like Someone that. Someone of the arts, if we can get him up there. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, he'll probably wind up just spreading the message in, in his own way. Right. And one artist who expressed an early interest in spaceflight was... I think John Denver? Yes. yes. Um, he honestly, signed up for this, I believe. Well, he wanted... Yeah, he yes. was... Not for teachers willing, in space, right. but... Like, but willing to go. Ma- it, making his interest known. Yeah. Um... Honestly, after covering his life and death, I think he would have been great. It makes sense. It makes sense because he he was a pilot. Yes, it would have been amazing. And I think he would have written a beautiful song about it, frankly. I'm sure he would have. I'm I'm sure he did. He just never went up there. Right. And he, I I also think he was relatively eloquent, like he could have spoken to it and everything. Well, he's an everyman. So it would have... It would have struck a chord with yeah, a lot like of people. Yeah, like he was he was kind of, a, he was very talented, yes. obviously, in that way. But he he's not the, an everyman. But yeah. yeah, he had like the just kind of average guy, and he certainly wasn't a physicist, right, or anything like that. Um, but it wasn't just like poets or, you know, literary figures or artists. Um, in a much less inspired idea, NASA was considering sending a fictional character into space. Um, i.e. Big Bird. <laughs> okay. Like, the, just the costume? Like, put it down in the ship or so something? So, here's my, here's my question. You're going to make a grown human 
dressed in a space. Are going to make somebody wear that? There's no way. Big, yeah, that was the idea. Oh, my God. Dressed as Big Bird. Yeah, don't do that. Have to put a suit on top of their Big Bird. Think, okay, look. How would you fit the head in there? So this is just a, a <laughs> dipshit idea. But not to put too fine a point on it. But let's say that they had gone with Big Bird and this disaster had happened. Would you want to be the no. idiot in the Hell Big no. Bird? Like, I'm going to die as Big Bird. Like, that would be insult to injury. Or I'm, I'm going to come back to Earth as, leaving Earth as Big Bird. Like, that's just kind of ridiculous on its own. And, just, yeah. and also, like, how would you even do the paperwork? Clearly, there's a person underneath this. It's, it's just such a terrible idea. Anyway, um, the idea was to engage America's children, which, you know what? Not a terrible idea, but the problem is it's not a real thing. Um, but you know what else? It's also such a bad idea. I'm kind of surprised Reagan didn't sign off on it and decide that's that true. that's the way to go. That's true. It is like, yes. clownish enough for Reagan to well, think he, it's a good idea. Well, he came idea. from the entertainment oh, you know, yeah. world, so. Oh, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. He, he probably didn't remember turning <laughs> that one down. Exactly. Um, it went down like Nancy. Mm, In narrowing oh, down. <laughs> hey. And narrowing now. down who the first civilian in space should be. Again, Reagan and NASA played it very, very smart. First off, make it a contest. Sure. Always make it a competition. What's more American than politicians pitting their constituents against each other? Ideal, right? First good idea. Second, the party... That just, just in case anybody needed a reminder, the Republican Party in the United States is currently full-on, openly attacking the public education system oh, in God, the United yeah. States, right? They're succeeding, too. Yes. That's the, that's the horrible part. Yes. So that's this party saying, we won't just send any civilian into space. We will send one of our very fine teachers who we hold fully responsible for our children's well-being and pay almost nothing. What could be better? Oh, my God. Just think about that. You would, you would never hear that today. I mean, it's sad. Sad. No, these fuckers. These fuckers. I just, like, fuck them all. <laughs> fuck them all. Fuck them all. What does he have against them all? <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Uh, so... Probably, foot, probably <laughs> Foot Locker. <laughs> Thus began the brainchild of the Teachers in Space Project program did i say i say i think i probably switched it and i honestly don't even remember if it's program or project who the fuck cares teachers in space it didn't make a difference certainly not the modern day dop it did well and it didn't make a difference to krista mccall she's still dead regardless of what this was called so um as reagan stated when he announced the program in august of 1984 quote when the shuttle lifts off all of America will be reminded of the crucial role that teachers and education play in the life of our nation. I can't think of a better lesson for our children and our country. End quote. Interestingly, I think the country did see a good lesson for the children in the country. It just wasn't the lesson that they thought they were going to see. Good point. So just as with any demographic of civilians, there was plenty of interest by America's educators at being the one teacher to go into space. Sure. Over 11,000 applications. I'm guessing a lot of gym teachers. <laughs> I mean, really? Probably. <laughs> Guys with mustaches. They just wanted to uh, 
they they just got turned off by the fact that they couldn't um do a like put dunk the astronaut nerd's head into the toilet and do yeah. a swirly in space. Like, you know, oh, we don't. Yeah. Uh, uh, never I, mind. I withdraw. Mm-hmm. I withdraw my future position. So over eleven thousand applications were whittled down to one hundred fourteen, with a minimum of two applicants per state. Then ten finalists, six women and four men. Like this is the Sally Ride era. They're trying to be a little more inclusive. Were chosen until Sharon Krista McAuliffe, born Sharon Krista Corrigan, became Reagan's unlucky chosen one in nineteen eighty five. Krista was a 37-year-old social studies teacher. I cannot believe that I'm older than when Krista McAuliffe died, but... And she... And this has been 37 years. Yeah. Oh, she's been... Yeah, it's been the same length of time that she's been she's dead. Been wow. passed away as long as she's been alive. Yeah. She was alive... Well, yeah, many more days than just, like, you know. But it's, it's, it's yeah. getting there. It's getting to even. Uh, she would have been 74 now. That's crazy. Yeah. Wow. Uh, she was a social studies teacher at Concord High School in Concord, New Hampshire. She has a great accent. Oh, my God. She watch did. watch that Netflix documentary, and she's just... I get why they picked her. She's very nice. She seemed... She came off really well. She did. <clears throat> but not in a contrived way, right? No, she came off all. in a very, gen- she very came nice off, You know what she came off as? Mm. A mother of two who was a who was a teacher. Exactly That's right. That's what she came off as. Exactly right. Um, she was a good choice for the job. I mean, even though she was going into space with like PhD holders, she was not an uneducated woman. She no. had a master's degree in education. Also, by the way, she got married young, like everybody did back in the day, right? Had yeah, two having kids. two kids at thirty-seven at this time is. I mean, that's actually. Oh, she was a late starter, right? Or or it's like, you don't have five? (laughs) Right. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. But she she was a wife and a mother, which women always get the additional emotional work. We know that, let alone the physical work. And that's, I'm sure it was 10 times greater back in 1986. She had got, she had gone to college, got her bachelor's, got her master's, had two kids, and had a successful teaching career. You know? that's crazy. It's just, it's just kind of like one, and now was going into space. It's kind of one of those, like, if you want something done, give it to a busy person, because those are the most competent people, you know? She was a competent person. She was a highly competent person. Um, and it also seems like she shared the driven, overachieving traits that astronauts had, right? Mm-hmm. So she fit that mold, for sure. Um, of course, not to gloss over this, she was pretty, she was white, she was thin, she came across well. She was a good PR choice, too. I don't I, I don't think that she was she had a nice 80s going perm. for that. She did have a great perm. 80s, that, no, 80s perm. Yeah, she had a great 80s perm. You're right, you're right. Um, she was a really good face for TISP. Well, and that's part of it, too. Let's let's be honest. When they're, when they're whittling right. down candidates, they're like... Mm-hmm. We've, oh, got to, we've got to sell this. Exactly. Now, I'm not blaming her for that. I no. think she was doing this all very genuinely. I'm blaming Reagan, specifically by name. I'm calling that I'm, fucker out by name. I'm, I'm fine with blaming Reagan for anything. Yeah. That that they, like, trotted out someone to just make everything look better. Especially in a party. Reagan 
created our modern hell, right? So... Not all on his own. Like, he, he put it into overdrive. Yeah, but he it kicked was... It. He kick-started it, but anyway. I hate him. I don't know if I've, I've adequately expressed that I hate him. I always Reagan. take it back to Nixon, but... Reagan was. Uh, I'm not saying I like Nixon. Right. No. 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 I'm. I'm talking I'm about as far I as specifically the, uh, hate as far as Reagan. our current failures, who kind of put that into motion. To me, was Nixon. That's fine. Yeah. And that's fair. But I hate Nixon. Yeah. Or <laughs> I'm saying getting myself mixed up. I fucking hate Reagan. Like I said, his best trait is that he's dead. That fucker can die 27 more times over. I hope there is a hell, and I go there so I get to watch him burn forever it's the only time we'll see a smile in hell yeah and then ironically hell would not become hell would then become my heaven and then they'd have to send me to heaven with all the boring people so anyway so (laughs) (laughs) your call jesus (laughs) i don't mean to like gloss over krista's biography or anything um but you can find out so much about her there's a lot of footage and source material sure. and stuff from many many sources she was the face of the challenger mission and the disaster would become highly personal to a lot of people because of her as a direct result of her participation in this mission but but that was the other thing too mm-hmm. how she handled herself like she went from being a nobody to talking to the press every day yes uh-huh you know multiple times a day some days and well always under... always handled herself pretty <laughs> well you know, under steady. extreme duress <laughs> and f- from the phys- training physically and mentally from the training yeah. that training is fucking hardcore and she was going through it as not an athlete as a not civilian a, yeah as a complete civilian and it was only like six months yep so she she was a trooper to say yeah. the least you know so I'm not trying to gloss over her, sure. but what I do want to do is talk, when we did the Columbia episodes, remember I talked through like a biography of each crew member? Yes. So that's what I want to do with this. Sure. Um, because I'm going to drive it home as we continue this, you know, trilogy, how fucked up this is that all of this happened, especially for why it happened and how it happened. Um... By making us realize that these were seven people yep. with families and lives and Unre- aspirations. Unreal and- lives. Oh, amazing. I mean, so let's get into it. So, yeah. Commander Francis Richard Scobie. Dick Scobie. Because back then they didn't realize that Dick was kind of a <laughs> I, I an odd know. name. But anyway. <laughs> Somebody, the kids will bring it back someday. <laughs> so Dick Scobie was, what age do you think, David? Uh, he was the commander, you mm-hmm. said? I'm going to guess like 45, something like that. He's exactly your age, 46. Oh, okay. So you were you were very close. So literally, imagine someone your age. No. <laughs> like, no, I'm not going no. to. <laughs> imagine myself. <laughs> don't, don't do that. <laughs> so he was 46 at the time of disaster. He was the oldest member of the Challenger crew. So. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Wow. That's not very old. No, it's not. They Back then, 46 owned. was older. It was. Or I 45. know what you mean. I'm 46. <laughs> I didn't print out any but, uh, pictures or anything. They do look older than they actually are because yeah. that's just how it looked. It's how then. film was and it's how exactly. people dressed and wore their hair. Mm-hmm. They, they just looked older. Everybody looks like somebody's mom or dad. They did. This is how it, how it went. Which they all, <laughs> which they all I think, I believe they all were. Right? And you find out that they're all like 30. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they look like 
like someone's 45 year old I was mom. like still trying to find myself when I was 30. <laughs> oh, but no, they're not all parents and we'll get oh, to that. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh. Uh, so Dick was born and raised in Washington state. He was enamored with airplanes. So no surprise. He went the air force route, right? Tons of astronauts have gone through the military, especially the Air Force, right? Because if you're if you're fascinated the, the, with flight, uh, the vast majority, we'll yes, put it that way, a, a huge number. Yeah. So he he joined the Air Force right out of high school. He attended night school because apparently serving full time in the Air Force wasn't challenging enough for him. Yeah, he's, he's <laughs> he, like, I need a law degree too. He attended night school at San Antonio College, while stationed at Kelly Air Force Base in Texas. His two years of engineering studies at San Antonio qualified him to participate in the Airmen's Education and Commission Program. And that's where he met a girl named Virginia June Kent, who, like Dick and they're in the South, I guess, like you always say, went by her middle name, (laughs) June, at a church dance. She would later recall, quote, he walked straight to me, put out his hand and said, hi, I'm Dick Scobie. And my life changed forever after that moment. End quote. So Dick and June got married at that exact same church when June graduated from high school. I know that sounds a little creepy, but she was obviously an older teenager. He was 18. You know, it's just like a... It's a different time. (laughs) Well, and like they were probably like two years apart. I'm just going to go wherever I I'll be right back. Okay. You're just leaving me? All right. So now that you're back... I'm thirsty. (laughs) Okay, that's fine. just walked off (laughs) okay anyway i was trying to do the timeout and i forgot (laughs) you did forget so dick received his bachelor's degree in aerospace engineering which we talked to our nephew tyler about he was he's thinking about going into engineering and he was like yeah i'm not gonna do aerospace engineering he's like you gotta get every everything right and it's like yes that's correct you you do do. (laughs) that's how the challenger came up exactly like do you know of that and he's like yeah i've heard about it Uh, Yeah, even the 17-year-olds have heard of it. Mm -hmm. So he got his degree from the University of Arizona, and he became a commission officer officer before flying combat missions in Vietnam. Bad timing for a career airman, right? Yeah. Uh, He wound up getting a number of honors, including the Distinguished Flying Cross. Uh, So (laughs) he's a decorated war veteran, as if, like, his degree and all that wasn't impressive enough. He also uh, so after the war he completed aerospace research pilot school and became a test pilot. A lot of these astronauts go the test pilot route, right? Because that's where you're doing the the heavy shit yeah. in in planes, right? Um. So in the meantime, June became an English professor. She and Dick had a son and a daughter together, and their son Richard W. Scobie would go on to be a highly decorated lieutenant general in the U.S. Air Force. And see combat in the Gulf War and in Iraq. Hmm. Because America hasn't tortured this family enough. In 1978, Dick was selected for the astronaut training program at NASA. So this class of astronauts were known as the 35 New Guys. And it was the first class of astronauts to include women and people of color. So this was the most diverse group of astronaut candidates that NASA had put together. The 10th Challenger mission was not Dick's first. He was the pilot for the 5th Challenger mission in April 1984. 
But for the ill-fated mission, he was a commander. He was piloting on the other one. June called Dick, quote, a real team player, end quote. Obviously a good quality for a, a leader, right? He frequently brought the crew and their families together for activities like picnics and playing baseball games, fostering a feeling of familiarity and camaraderie amongst everyone. They touch on that in that documentary. Mm -hmm. It's really nice, you know. Which makes the tragedy even worse. That's exactly what I'm trying to do here is drill home how awful this is, right? Um, Then there was pilot Michael John Smith. So Michael Smith was 40 at the time of the disaster the pilot i think i mentioned that. i don't know why i keep forgetting probably because i'm tired anyway he was born and raised in Beaufort, connecticut oh. mm-hmm. and i think that's on the coast if i'm not mistaken anyway sure he was kind of like a jock he played tennis squash football he boxed and as is highly befitting a north carolina boy he met his future wife jane and gerald at a shag dance at the beach. For anyone, I don't know. Did you know what shag dancing was before yeah. or shagging before you got to North Carolina? Yeah, because of the it was movie. South Carolina. Oh, what yeah. movie? There was a movie called Shag. Came out in like really? 1987 or 88. Really? Yeah. I didn't know that. It's got a uh, Phoebe Cates in it, I think. Mm. It's got somebody fairly famous. We talked in about it. that recently, yeah. I think. <clears throat> and they so. it's filmed in Myrtle Beach. <clears throat> Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. So for those who are unfamiliar, I sure had no fucking clue. When we moved up here and someone mentioned shagging on the beach, I mean, come on. Yeah, talk about (laughs) something else. Yeah. So in in North Carolina, well, it's the Carolinas, I guess. There's like a culture thing. I don't know how big it is anymore. I I associate with a lot of older people. But um, I'm still around. Beach music and shag dancing. Yeah. It's a specific style of dancing. Um, it's it, it takes talent to do it. I mean, some people, if you've ever seen shag dancers, like they're, it, it takes some coordination and some. Like a uh, beach music is also kind of where uh, rockabilly started. Not rock. where it started. No, or, it, where it kind of went. Went. Yes, yeah. that's mm-hmm. what I meant to say. Um, like if you've ever heard Carolina Girls, that's a that's a beach music classic it's just sort of like the it's like the east coast's version of the beach boys sort of um how about it (laughs) a little more buttoned (laughs) up and uh yeah and and no no nobody suffering from a mental illness uh producing it so the beach boys the east boys the east boys (laughs) the shag boys boys. (laughs) um so jane would later recall so they met at the shag dance that she couldn't understand when Michael went and his name is Michael Smith. Remember this when he introduced himself to her, she couldn't understand his name because his accent was so thick. Like that's how much of a Carolina boy he was. Right. His name is Michael Smith. Like how much can you butcher that name with your accent? Well, you can, you can Michael add, Smith. I was going to say you, you add a lot of, uh, <laughs> a lot of long yeah. vowels. Yes. To names down here. To just words down here. Actually, you know what it is? What I find the hardest thing... It's about around here. No, uh, you get out a little bit in the country and it gets that way, right? What I always find is there is a little bit, like the low country accent a little bit. It it tends to be more mumbly. Like if someone has a low voice or mumbles, it's really hard to understand. Yeah, a guy I work with has got got an old old southern boy Mm. accent. Mm-hmm. Takes him a long time to say a single sentence. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that was a little on the slower side, yes. 
Um, so yeah, so she's like, <laughs> I can imagine that she's like, wait, what's your name? What? And he keeps trying to say it, and she keeps saying she's what? Like, Michael W. Smith, the, <laughs> <laughs> the Christian contemporary artist. Is that, that you? That is doesn't have a career yet. Is that yes. you? Is that him? Michael W. Smith would have been becoming popular when the Challenger happened. So when the disaster happened. So um, so after this, like back and forth, he pulled out his pilot's license so that she could just see his name which i find hilarious and he had just gotten his he, well so my guess is also there showed man, somebody exactly. yeah. well plus it's a also good a lady it's yeah. a good it's, it's good a good line right yeah basically. by the way by the way i'm a pilot yeah. you know i have we, I fully qualified. we can fly somewhere exactly <laughs> <laughs> when i say come fly with me i mean it literally yeah <laughs> Um, and they married six years later at age 21. And they would eventually have three children together, Scott, Allison, and Aaron. Michael went the Navy route. So he did not go in the Air Force. He went in the Navy. He attended the U.S. Naval Academy, followed by the U.S. Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey, California, where he received his master's degree in aeronautical engineering. So another aeronautical engineer. Ironically, the commander is of this mission, who, mind you, has a degree in aer- aeronautic, um, enge- aeronautical engineering, is the least educated member of this yeah, group. Which is, yeah, just shows you something right there. Exactly. So he was a flight instructor. He also completed a tour in Vietnam. He was assigned to the aircraft carrier. Again, very fitting for a Carolina boy, the USS Kitty Hawk. Sure. So like Dick, Michael also became a test pilot after the war. He was an instructor um, uh, for test pilots as well. He was selected for NASA's astronaut program in May 1980. The 10th Challenger mission was his very first space flight. Though he was already also slated to fly again in the fall of 86. So he was going to have two missions that year. Michaels was the last voice heard Mm. on the voice recorder of the Challenger. His last words were, "Uh uh-oh. Yeah, that's Mm. the last thing on the recorder. Last thing anybody ever heard of the crew. Uh Uh-oh. All right, mission specialist Ellison Shoji Onizuka. So Ellison, who was born Onizuka Shoji, was 39 at the time of the disaster. He was born and raised in Hawaii, though that was not a state at the time of his birth. It was a U.S. territory, Hmm. not yet achieved statehood. Um, I say achieved. I don't know how much of an achievement it is to join the United States, but whatever. When you get federal funds, sure. I guess, yeah. Yeah. Well, and and instead of having to be like poor Puerto Rico, which is a state for all intents and purposes and yet gets fucked over. Just not officially. Yeah. Um, so he was, yeah, he was born in 1940. I, I, I do like poor Puerto Rico, though. Poor Puerto Rico? Poor Puerto Rico. <laughs> um, Not sure how they feel about it. <laughs> no. By poor, I mean, I like, I don't mean they get poverty, By poor, I mean they get I mean. hammered by a freaking uh, hurricane just about every year. And then the fucking president goes down and throws toilet paper at their heads <laughs> yes. or whatever. Because yeah. he's a fucking idiot. Who, uh, yeah. <laughs> like he was practicing a free throw is what he was doing. That asshole should have gotten arrested for that. At least he's getting arrested. What tomorrow is that? It, it, no, by Tuesday. The, well, where this is coming out Monday, so by the time this comes out, so it'll be April fourth is when he's being. This comes out April third. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the day after. 
here's hoping the we get... The day after a great 80s movie about uh, what if we actually did go to nuclear war. War games? No. No. No, it was called The Day After. It was oh. a made-for-TV movie that freaked people out. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. As it should, we came a little too close to that multiple times. Yeah. Anyway, so this is a Japanese-American man who was born in 1946. <laughs> this is just after World War II, right? Um, it probably was not particularly easy for him to be a, a Japanese-American person growing up. No. But Ellison was like the picture of an American kid. He participated in 4-H, the future farmers of America, and the Boy Scouts where he reached the rank of Eagle Scout, which if I'm not mistaken is like the highest rank in Boy Scouts or something. Anyway. It's up there. Well, you were never in Boy Mm-mm. Cub Scouts, nothing like nope. that. Yeah. I was never in Girl Scouts or anything, so... I just didn't do social things. <laughs> I just I played I sports. Did. You did play sports, yes. <laughs> um, Ellison went to the University of Colorado at Boulder to get both his bachelor's and master's degrees in, what do you think? Uh, engineering of some sort. Aerospace, aeronautical <laughs> yeah. engineering. All, all of them? Yes. All, all oh, of the, sorry. Oh. Aerospace engineering. Oh, okay. Yes. Uh-huh. Yes. All of the engineers. All of the engineers. <laughs> Ellison was married to Lorna Leiko Yoshida, with whom he had two daughters, Janelle and Darian. Lorna Onizuka, though herself not an astronaut, she was also remarkable in the aerospace field. So she was working as a teacher uh, and fielding the usual duties of a mid-80s wife and mother. She was basically a lot like Krista, right? Sure. Raising a family, two kids, a teacher. But she also attended graduate school got her master's, and made a really bold move for, first of all, for anybody, but especially a woman in the 80s. Like, kind of, uh, she wouldn't have been, well, yeah, let's say she was roughly Ellison's age. She would have been in, like, her mid-late 30s. She's like, I'm going to change careers. And she became a consultant to the Japanese Aerospace Exploration Agency, or JAXA, supporting the Multilateral Crew Operations Panel. She started her new job in 1985 and then had to ask her new employer for a two-week break so that she could watch Ellison's launch in January of 1986. And that break would, of course, end up becoming a whole lot longer. She actually said that her, well, which fortunately, her employer was very good about it. I mean, what the fuck are you going to do? Say, oh, yeah, we all saw your husband die live on television, but so we, come back we, to work. But we need you to be here on Monday. We're going to need you. What's the Gary we're Cole gonna, line? We're gonna, yes, we're going to need you on uh, Saturday. Mm-hmm. And now that we think of it, on uh, Sunday as well. <laughs> okay? So Hi, Milton. <laughs> So again, to no one's surprise, Ellison was. Are you out? Do you want? You no, can no, start I'm fine. on this one. All right. Um. Uh. Ellison was a military guy in a familiar astronaut's path. He served as a test pilot and a squadron flight test engineer. A few years later, Ellison. I didn't put what branch. I forget what branch. I'm sorry. Anyway, a few years later, Ellison. Air Force and Navy. Yeah, probably. Like. Yeah, probably Air Force, I think, but I'm not positive. Um, Ellison was a NASA classmate of his Challenger commanders. So like Dick Scobie, Ellison was one of the 35 other guys. So he was one of the people of color inducted into this class of astronauts. 
And also, like Dick, Ellison was not a newbie in space with the 86 Challenger mission. On January 24th, 1985, so basically exactly a year, he was in space exactly a year Mm -hmm. before the Challenger, he became the first Asian American in space on the third mission of the space shuttle, Discovery. Okay. The mission was also a first in that it was the first classified mission made by U.S. shuttles. The Department of Defense, a Department of Defense satellite was launched during the three days Discovery was in space. Spy on those damn commies. Mm. Ellison was known to have an excellent sense of humor. They touched on that in the documentary, I remember. He looked like one of those guys who's sort of straight-faced, but with, like, the tiniest bit of a, like, what shit can I stir here? What Like a a little devilish sense of humor, kind of like. But And he was also a practicing Buddhist. Sure. He coached his two daughters' soccer team. And before the launch of the Challenger, his daughters gave him a soccer ball to take with him in space. He brought it aboard, and it was recovered after the accident intact. I was just going to ask. Like, did Fully it intact. actually survive? It the... did. That's insane. Yeah. Wow. I'm sure those girls would have rather had their dad. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, mission specialist Ronald Irwin McNair. So Ron was 35 at the time of the Young. disaster. He was the youngest member of the Challenger crew. He was from South Carolina, and if you're 35 in 1986, that means you were born in 1951 or, fi- or 52. I think he was born later than 52. means you grew 52. up in the Civil Rights era. You grew up in the Jim Crow South before you hit the um, Civil Rights era. And there's a famous story surrounding Ron, um, how he refused to leave his local segregated public library because he just wanted to read, and he was not, because of his race, he was not allowed to check out books. Uh, His mother and the cops were called, and the standoff concluded with eight-year-old Ron being allowed to check out the books. (laughs) Like, just give the kid the damn books, whatever. Well, I mean, ultimately, that's the thing they don't want, is people to be Education? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh... (laughs) Reminds me of a uh, uh, a song we sang tonight at the gig. We sang "I'll Take You There," and when the line says, "Ain't no smiling faces lying to the races." Yeah. Anyway, I don't think I ever picked up on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a kind never, of a nonsense song, except I've for like never two. Never paid lines. attention to the lyrics of that song. Nobody does. It's just the same baseline and all <laughs> yeah. that. Anyway, your favorite. <laughs> it, I actually don't mind it so much because I get a little solo in the middle. But are you playing air yes, guitar? I am. Air good. bass. Air bass, very good. Um, so obviously, if this kid is eight, like wanting so desperately to leave that uh, to read that he won't leave the library, this is a smart kid, right? <laughs> right. Um, who grew into a smart man? He was the son of a mechanic and a teacher, and basically, he like inherited inherited the best of both of sure. them. He was very, he was so good at technical and mechanical things. As a child, his nickname was Gizmo. (laughs) That's funny. Ron was very interested in space from a young age, first from seeing Sputnik launch in 1957 and then watching Star Trek, which included, for the time, a pretty racially diverse supporting cast. And that helped Ron imagine that there could possibly be a place in space for him after all. Even though at the time, of course, only white men were making it at NASA. 
Ron graduated as his high school valedictorian at age 17. He was a jock and a band nerd. He was a a sports guy, but also a great sax player. That is a uh, combination that you rarely hear of, a jock and a band band geek at the same time. These people are rare people, right? right? Uh Uh-huh. Talk about being the outlier of the outlier. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I played in the first half, and then I was in the marching band at halftime. <laughs> I don't think that's literally what happened, but I see what you mean. <laughs> These guys probably tried. Right. He, uh, so, And then he graduated magna cum laude on a scholarship from the North Carolina Agriculture and Technical State A&T. University in Greensboro, mm-hmm. which is just about an hour and change down the road from us. Um. Oh, his major? Pretty easy, just engineering physics, which I didn't know you could combine engineering and physics, but you can. Sure. Uh, But apparently, I love this, Ron initially wanted to be a music major. (laughs) He's like, well, okay, I guess I'll switch to engineering, physics, whatever. You know, my mom said a music degree wasn't very practical. Mm. (laughs) Um, As if... I can't find anybody to be in the band. (laughs) As if being such a smart, smart person wasn't enough for Ron, he went on to attend the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Ever heard of it? Nope. Where's that? Uh, Is that in Massachusetts? (laughs) It just reminds me of, uh, when I said ever heard of it, reminds me of uh, Andy Bernard. Went to Cornell, ever ever heard heard of of it? it? (laughs) Don't remember anything. I was drunk all the time. (laughs) He did say that. Um... So the highest ranks of academia were, to say the least, challenging as a young black man in the early 70s. But Ron continued his studies through his PhD, where he specialized in laser physics. Which Again, was some, didn't uh, know that was a thing. Was some new shit even back then. Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, yes. This is cutting edge stuff. At one point in his program, two years worth of his research data was stolen. And oh man! He had to completely reproduce oh. the data, which he did in just one year. Half. So the time. he learned. He was like, he probably like, had that shit memorized. Probably by did. He's like, all right, on this next run, I think you can do it in half the time. <laughs> It'll only take a year. In 1976, Ron became Doctor Ron Ronald McNair. and went to work in the private sector. So he actually went the private sector route, which happens a couple more times. The same year, he also married Cheryl Moore, with whom he would have a son, Reginald, and a daughter, Joy. A couple of years later, Ron decided, why not try NASA? Yeah, why not? Guys, <laughs> I, think I'm, uh, I think the, the astronaut think thing looks kind of cool. I think I'm going to try know, that. I was thinking music, then, you know, engineering, physics, whatever. Lasers uh, were kind of cool, but what about s- right. space? Lasers won't be around in like 10 years, <laughs> let's be but space will be. Uh, space will be forever yeah. until it all implodes on everybody and on all the galaxies. Well, a black hole can do that, but <laughs> space, space still exists. What's the, what's the reverse of the Big Bang, though? <laughs> let's never find out. <laughs> <laughs> uh, maybe now would actually be a great time, but anyway. Um, so he became yet another of the Challenger crew to be one of the 35 other guys. So he was in that same class. Uh, he became the second African-American in space just months after 
Gion S. Bluford. So Bluford flew on the third mission of Challenger, and Ron was right after him on the Oh, wow. Okay. Mm-hmm. So he had also That's pretty cool, been though, on back to back. Yeah, uh-huh. Yep, so he he was on the... So Bluford was on the third Challenger mission. Uh, Ron was on the fourth, and it was... Uh, wasn't it Dick who was on the fifth? So they were like, bing, bing, bing. Hey, uh, it would be another two years before a black... Uh, man even started the Super Bowl as a quarterback. Oh, really? Wow. So, do you remember who that was? So, that the, is? this is, we're talking about the first black uh, starting quarterback in the Super Bowl. Mm-hmm. Um, and this would be 88, I guess? Cause you're It'd be the 87th couple... season, okay, but the actual eight. Super Bowl takes place the... Can you give me a hint as to the team? Uh, they recently became the Commanders. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, that didn't help at all. <laughs> Well, they used to be the Washington Redskins. No, I know that. Oh, okay. Okay. I'm just, I'm just saying. No, it's it's kind of a random player. Oh, okay. Doug Williams. Oh, never heard of him. Yeah. Sorry, Doug. He won. He beat uh, he beat John Elway in that Super Bowl. Oh, good. John Wait. Elway seems smug to me. It probably is. Yeah, they I mean, probably all are. That's what happens when you get drafted into the NFL and by the New York Yankees. Well, there you go. <laughs> Speaking of accomplished men. Yeah. As if the fact that the man was basically a physic well, actually not basically, he was a physics he and was. engineering genius, but he was also an accomplished saxophone player who famously performed in space aboard his first Challenger flight. Nice. He paid, played saxophone in space. It's uh, awesome. Duke Silver. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and he also excelled in karate. Winning <laughs> what? Yes, d- d- I don't remember yes. that from the. Yeah, I remember he played his. Um, I remember he was a pretty big dude. His, too. I don't know what they call them in karate, but his the shirt, gi. gi, yeah, um, is on display at Kennedy Space Center no as like one of his sort of like defining things. And he was probably just effects. like one day, yeah, that that uh, like, <clears throat> so I saw a Karate Kid the other day. I, <laughs> I think thought, let me I, give I think I'm gonna give that a try. And then he reached the rank of fifth degree black belt. Uh, of course. Because, yeah, yeah, I mean, what else? There <laughs> probably isn't a sixth. Right. Like, he, yeah. He's like, yeah, that karate kid was pretty good. Like, I think <laughs> I, I I, can do that, I think. He's literally that person who shows up the first day of class, and the teacher shows him once, and he yeah. nails it. Yeah, Like, oh, you mean like this? <laughs> like, he's never played guitar before, and he's at, like, a party, and he's like, oh, this thing. And then he, like, rips into a solo, and it's just like, you shouldn't <laughs> exist. Like, everything is unfair. Like, you're an unfair human. Yeah. <laughs> Your existence is unfair because you yes. make the rest of us You're feel just inferior. You're fucking it up for the rest of us. Don't do that. So, on to mission specialist Judith Arlene Resnick. So, Judith Resnick was 36 at the time of the disaster. <clears throat> she was born in Akron, Ohio to Jewish parents and was raised to be an observant Jew, studying Hebrew as a kid. Judith showed incredible potential as a child, able to excel at just basically anything she wanted to, right? One of those people that once they set their mind, you know, there's that saying that you can do anything you set your mind to. I that's I don't think that's accurate for a lot of reasons, but just some people like if you have ADHD, like you may really want to do something, but it's not going to always work out for you and stuff like that. You know? It reminds me of because I was in sales for a long time. Uh huh. There are plenty of people because you know you bounce around from sales jobs because right. it's kind of what you do. But you'll always meet the one or two guys in that sales job that can, like, just sell shit in their sleep. Right. And it's, and it's just... Prodigy. It's, and it's yeah. just... 
infinitely easy for them and you're like fuck you <laughs> well like i don't look forward to getting up on monday morning now imagine that but like a little girl uh, yeah that's, <laughs> yeah but... so like make it even worse i probably meet i probably met that person in my life at right? some point and just felt ashamed <laughs> So like Ron McNair, Judith graduated as her high school valedictorian and was also a musician who was good enough to have the opportunity to major in music. Oh, just by the way, she also got a perfect SAT score in case you didn't think she was good yeah. enough, but whatever. Yeah. But she wasn't... What? Whatever. <laughs> whatever. W. <laughs> Big W. But she wasn't just, eh, maybe I'll go major in music somewhere. She was accepted into Juilliard. <laughs> so. <laughs> like, basically, one of the, if not essentially the quintessential great music schools in Never the world. Never heard of it. <laughs> Julie what? Who? What's her name? Because she was legitimately on the path to become a career concert pianist. That's how good she was. That's ridiculous. It is uh, talk I've, about yeah. I, talk I mean, about I've like the one percent of the one percent. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. I've seen that live a couple of times, and it's amazing. It really is. Like genuine, it's like, like it's amazingly like, con- it's good like, concert pianist. Yeah. It's like this is the best of the best. It, it really is not the best of the best two, mm-hmm. <laughs> or the best of the best three. Yeah, which is the worst. Um, but she decided to go a different path. She's like, hey, you know what? I like math. I'm pretty good at math. Yeah. Hey, let me go to Carnegie Mellon. <laughs> Which she did. Who? And she got a degree call me? in electrical engineering. Yeah. Sure. Uh, she continued all the way through getting her PhD, so Dr. Judith Resnick, in electrical engineering, but she also did a lot of work, extensive work, in the field of biomedical engineering. And in 1980s, well, and this would have been before that because she was still in school in like the late 70s, biomedical engineering is like the literal cutting edge of science yeah kind of still is it, I mean, I, it is yeah you're you're right I work it's in a that lot. field to an extent yes not i not love like you and you are a hard worker but you don't exactly <laughs> no. do it well, yeah no i just um, execute the formulas that people like this come up with <laughs> so judith decided to pursue a career as an astronaut when she was accepted into say it with me the 35 Otherwise. Oh, okay. So the class of nineteen seventy-eight. She was one of the. Space. <laughs> she was one of the six women in the first class of NASA accepting women as astronaut candidates. Well, in that show, remember. Um, for all uh, mankind. For, mm-hmm. They kind of they do a version of this, but it's all women. Remember. Mm-hmm. Yep. Because at that, well, we don't. Not too many spoilers. It's a great show. I actually recommend it. But um, the idea. Spoiler alert. Was that if we couldn't beat the Soviets to the moon, we had to be the first at something else, including, like, making women at the forefront, being more progressive. And in this timeline, they beat us to that, too. (laughs) Well, no, they beat us to that, period. Yeah, Oh, (laughs) Oh, I I get what you're saying, but no, um, so one of, one of the other 35 other guys, one of the, geez, at least it's empty this time, uh, one of the... 35 other guys, one of the six women. One of the other women was Sally Ride. Yeah. So, of course, she was the first woman, first American woman in space. The Soviets, so I mentioned this earlier, um, Valentina Tereshkova was in space in 1963, 20 years before Sally Ride. They beat us by a long shot. By a while. Yeah. Uh, Judith 
was actually considered, so she was considered to be the first woman, American woman in space. She was actually considered to be more qualified, like a better technical qualified candidate than Sally. Um, and she was a strong candidate to go into space before Sally, but Sally won out on public relations, right? It's like, eh, hey, I Judy's mean, like eh. smart and shit, but Sally's got a pretty smile. Well, it's like there's there's no such thing as not politics. Like Exactly. Politics are everywhere. Mm-hmm. Yep. So she knew, she's like, hey, for me to get one up on her, I gotta, mm. I gotta have a nice smile mm. in the press. So I'm not willing, because I haven't done any research... I'm not willing to say that that was Sally Ride's part. I'm no, saying, true. I'm putting that on NASA mm-hmm. more than I am on her. I'm not going to say that That's good like, point. there's trying to be some like. Or if there was even a competition like that anyway. She exactly. Just might have just, hey, exactly. It it, like, yeah, that's that's what they did. And NASA just picked her and that's what happened. Um, but Judith was still one of the women trailblazing for all American women in the space program. And she became the <laughs> She's just trailblazing for, like, a human. <laughs> she is. She's a trailblazing <laughs> human. You're right. They, all of these people are. <laughs> yeah. Um, she became the second American woman and the first American Jew of any gender uh, in space on the maiden voyage of the space shuttle Discovery. Judith was especially good at robotics. <laughs> Handy. Handy. So during her... I'm actually kind of... I'm With mm-hmm. robotics where they are... Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> With the creepy dogs that flip yeah. and do all that stuff. Yeah. Now we know who to blame. Yeah. <laughs> blame Judith Resnick yes. now. So during her young adulthood, Judith married fellow engineering student Michael Oldak. Judith had dated several boyfriends in her high school years, but struggled to find someone her parents, especially her mother, approved of. There was like a whole thing about her and her um, mom's relationship. Uh, yeah. Well, great. Um... But her marriage to Michael ended after five years, mostly due to the fact Michael wanted kids. Judith did not, because Judith like, is a very a smart lady. Yes. <laughs> yes. She was like, I've got shit to do. But She's like, look. I'm not cleaning you know, shit out of diapers. Exactly. For... She's like, honey, I'm a concert pianist. I can execute robotics. I can yeah. design I can all go this to Paris. XYZ. I can go to Paris tomorrow. I can do whatever the fuck I yeah. want. And I can't do any of that with a child. Yeah, I can. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To the extent I, I want to. I, I would. To. I would do anything for love, but I won't do that. It's <laughs> exactly the right answer. <laughs> Maybe that's who the song is about. We just figured mm-hmm. it out. Um, now, apparently, they split really amicably, which is very good. Well, you know, I mean, if it comes down to like, hey, we get along, but we really are just not able to come to an agreement on this try, one incredibly important thing. Try being Judith and trying to relate to another person. Like, who? <laughs> would be very I hard. mean, who are you going to relate to? Like, it's <laughs> That's just fair. You know, your your other oh, astronauts you, is who? Oh, you only have three page PhDs, <laughs> right? Huh. Uh, check, please. <laughs> Oh, oh, you don't have a hobby that includes you being good enough to be a concert pianist? Hmm. Whatever. Loser. So, <laughs> L for you. As a result, Judith lived the majority of her adulthood as a single woman 
And this is like, you know, the just post Mary Tyler Moore, you can make it on your own days, right? So she's kind of, she was a trailblazer in being a really successful And this is honestly like woman. the, uh, this is honestly like the second wave of feminism too. Yes. Yeah. This is, yeah, exactly. Um, and the good news is that it seems as though by all accounts, she had a very good time being a single lady. I fucking bet she did. <laughs> you she know? was described I as mean, she was described as quote a live liar yeah. and quote flirtatious and she dated more than one of her NASA astronaut classmates to which I say get it Judith. She was literally like fuck it. Literally. <laughs> she was probably like, like in, in life and like in her relationships. <laughs> she's like, probably yeah. like okay for once I feel like Look, you guys are still not as good as me because they're not. I mean, I'm sorry. She was a concert pianist and and a PhD. But she's like, but you do have a PhD that helps get you close, uh, and you're I'll hot. Think about, I'll so, think about it. Okay, okay, let's have some fun. Like, I love the idea of this beautiful, intelligent woman like tearing it up well, around town. That sounds like a good time to me realizing that she's got the world by the balls and actually like executing on that like just i can do whatever i want you do it judith i'm i'm so happy for her if that that's what it sounded like you know from what i read so i i sure hope that's exactly what happened for her she also kind of serves as a bit of a contrast to krista right krista the other woman on the mission was very now Highly accomplished in her own right. Sure. And being a career woman, too, which is a way that they were very similar. But she decided to go the marriage kids route, sure. right? It's like, it, it's almost the, the contrast yeah. is, like, if she'd just gone this route, maybe this could have been so her. Who, who knows, right? Or if she'd gone this route, maybe this could have been her. Right, exactly. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. The, yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's nothing against Krista. No, of course Krista. not. Um, I, I'm just saying, you know, it's it's interesting. Um I also think that if I could research the life of just one Challenger crew member, it would be Judith. She sounds. I would love. I wish she. I didn't know like, all that. I mean, I. I know. Me neither. I wish yeah. she. I hope. I don't know if she did or not, but like, like kept diaries. I bet it would be so amazing to read through her diaries. Just what a. She just sounds it's, like it's, she it's led pro- a really remarkable. It's life. probably just full of equations, and nobody can read it except for. Like, <laughs> Except for like three people. Oh, it'd be hilarious if it would. Now look, I'm not. I don't know any of this stuff for sure. I'm just like writing my little novel about what Judith was like, so it's entirely fictionalized. But like, it would be great to find a diary that was like all these complicated equations, and then like uh, below that, like fucked Gary last night. He was okay. I might let him take me out again. Mm. We'll see. Um, Joe looks pretty good too. We'll find out. I'll keep you updated. I'll find I'll find out after band practice. <laughs> no. At, uh-uh. at, at, uh, at, uh, uh-uh. at Concert pianist? No, no, no. Do not but, participate but, in band practice. Well, but in her mind, that's just what she's like. Like, I'll just be with the band, whatever. Get over it. <laughs> at the, the university place, prestigiously. There. That's where I hang out. <laughs> and then finally, we have mission specialist Gregory Bruce Jarvis. Mm-hmm. Greg Jarvis, who was 41 at the time of the disaster, though you would not know it from his picture. Again, everyone looks like they're 50 when they're 40. I was going to say he was easily 50-something looking. Yes. But again, that was normal. It was. It was normal for a 41-year-old in 1986. 
He was born in Detroit. He was another sports kid. Um, and interestingly, I, it's, I love this crossover that like all these scientists and incredibly intelligent people are also musicians. He was a musician. Um, he played classical guitar and classical guitar is not like, oh, you pick up and jam out some chords and no, 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 no. My grandfather played classical guitar. It is a very tricky skill to learn. It's a very different type it's of It's like uh, what Gustavo Santolala Santolala, yeah. Plays. Yeah. I think that. Uh, yes. Sure. Mm-hmm. That the guy. Last of Us that and guy. famous um, film composer. Yes. That guy. That guy. Um, and I think that, yeah, I, I just find it really interesting. Three crew members aboard the Challenger. Musicians. They could have started a little band. Guitar, wow. Classical guitar, classical piano, and sax. Also went to Good high man. school with my stepfather. Yes. Okay. So, can you can you talk about that? Like, what? well, uh, let's let's say that because I because I didn't know that you were gonna do this, and my well, my well here's okay. my until recently. Yeah. Mm-hmm. My thing was like when I get around to doing it. Yeah, that's why I'm doing it. <laughs> who knows? <laughs> who knows when that was gonna be? Yeah, that's why I would have been it. in the future. Mm-hmm. I'm leaving it vague. A lot of things are in the future and left <laughs> yes. vague with you. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's the best way. Mm-hmm. But uh, yes, my stepfather. So you said he was born in Detroit. Yes. Mm-hmm. So at some point in this guy's life, he winds up in Mohawk, New York, which yeah. is... He went to SUNY Buffalo for yeah. his bachelor's. So yeah. somehow he ended up in the Northeast. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yes. <clears throat> and in this part would be the like the Western New York part of the state. So so Mohawk, New York, is that like in, like in the Western part, meaning that little funny nose looking part of New York, like where Buffalo it's and It's kind of in between that and in, in like... Yeah. Yeah, it's in that general area. Okay. But, but um, I was there, and I don't remember specifically what I was there for. Mm-hmm. I was working for Clear Channel at the time. It was a sales call, right, yes. or something you were I was there for a couple through? of days. Uh-huh. I think that's when we wind up... Anyway. Okay. But I remember, uh, like, driving past... It was a K-12 through school. That's how small this town yeah. is. Uh-huh. So it was, like, all the kids... One school. All 57 of them, <laughs> right. like, went to this one school. Mm-hmm. And I drove past it, and it said, like, Gregory Jarvis Memorial High sc- or school, school. Area school something, or something. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, why do I know that? I'm like, I know that name from somewhere. Uh-huh. And, like, literally, like, the next day, it dawned on me. I'm like, that's who Peter was talking about that he, like, went Your to high school dad, with. Because yeah. uh-huh. he'd mentioned, like, yeah, I knew one of the... <laughs> I knew one of the guys that was on the Challenger. Like that's what? wild, yeah. So I'll try to get that story out of him yeah. before we wrap this up. Uh huh. Because I think he said he was two years older than him. No, younger. Or younger. That's Greg what. Greg Jarvis was forty-one, so he had been born circa forty-six. Yeah, but Peter's born forty-two. Or forty-five. Forty-five. Or forty-three. Yes. Forty-four. Peter, or forty-five. Peter was so, two years older than him. Okay. Yeah, gotcha. They played football together. Oh, okay. So he knew him, knew yes. him. Not just like, hey, that was the kid in the hall. It's yeah, good well, it's a, it's a K through twelve. Yeah, Every, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Knew his parents, knew his sister, probably. Wow. But uh, okay. I'll have to get that story hopefully before uh, we wrap this one up. And if not, yeah, then, yeah. we'll, we'll bring we'll it see. up another time. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So Greg went to SUNY Buffalo for his bachelor's in electrical engineering. Northeastern University for his master's, also in electrical engineering. Like I said, ironically, Dick Scobie is the least... Ed- he only had a bachelor's. Everyone yeah. else had a master's or PhD. Again, like, big, huge L <laughs> for the commander. I think it's interesting that it seems like he had the best soft skills, or at least the most prominent soft skills of everybody. So, like, maybe he wasn't 
the number one. Uh, clearly, he was just as intelligent, but just he may not have been the most formally educated. Even though he was very formally educated, um, but he may have been a commander because he's a good leader, sure, right? And that's course. a different thing. Yeah, he was. A, he was a you know, captains have like certain traits. Uh, yeah. So. Uh-huh. And it sounds like he was a not an asshole captain, you know, no. like you won't love me but you'll respect me sort of a person. It sounds like no, you'll love and respect me and that's what happened. That's kind of what it sounds like anyway. Um he was married to Mar- Marcia Jarbo, a fellow sporting explorers person. <laughs> and they enjoyed because, you know, if you just Get home from a long day at NASA. You know what do you what do you need to do? Hey, honey, let's go for a long distance cycle. Yeah, <laughs> they went long distance cycling. Well, this together. is they live in a place where you can do that. <laughs> yeah, right. I guess I don't know where they lived at this point, but um, they enjoyed a child free life together. I know that's an awkward thing to say. I actually don't know if they like wanted kids but couldn't have so them or whatever. So he's the childless one. Interesting. So is Judith. Yeah. Well, that's oh, that's, that's true. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Um. But anyway, they maybe they would have gone on to have their own children. Who knows? Maybe he was forty-one at the time. That would have been old. But I don't know. Maybe his wife was younger than him. But also, you know what? Good for them. They have more money, more time to cycle. Exactly. Exactly. So after school, Greg also went to the Air Force. Uh, He reached the rank of captain in his four years of service. He worked as an engineer. He was another private sector guy. Worked in the private sector for a bit. Um, for for a while, actually, not just like a couple years, like Ron McNair, he he worked in the private sector for like a decade, basically. Um, Greg, even though he was forty one, like second oldest, I think, on the crew, he was the crew member with the least amount of time served at NASA. He was accepted to serve as a payload specialist through his private sector company okay. by NASA in nineteen eighty four. Okay. So all the rest, like, I think 1980 was other, most of them were in 78, one of them was in 80. This he guy was four years after that, yeah. yeah. Literally a late bloomer. <clears throat> yeah, but he was especially keen to study the effects of space on fluids. He was going to do a fluid study aboard Challenger. He was originally slated to fly on Columbia in mid-January 1986, which was the last shuttle launch prior to the 10th Challenger mission. Unfortunately for Greg, his spot on Columbia was taken by former U.S. representative and current administrator of NASA, Bill Nelson. Wow. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, I don't know Bill Nelson. I don't know who that is. Yeah. He's a congressperson. I think he's a Democrat. I'm not positive. So I'm not, like, wishing him ill. But at the same time, like... No, Greg just, could have been on the other flight and yeah. just been okay. Well, that's just that's that's shitty. That's how it, how it works. works. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, it would have been shitty in the reverse as well. It, it's just all shitty. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's all shit. Um, also, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's maybe not the most controversial thing to say that the world could use more scientists and fewer politicians, but whatever. What? <laughs> huh? Sure about that? <laughs> so what I'm trying to emphasize here, of course, is that Dick, Michael, Ellison, Ron, Judith, Greg, and Krista were real people with real lives, mm. spouses, children, friends, families, yeah. hobbies, accomplishments, who were fully intending to travel to space to better lives through important scientific experiments and educational opportunities. They prepared for their mission knowing that 192 American astronauts had successfully made it safely past their launch into space 
and back home again. 60 of those astronauts were in the shuttle program alone, and these were still relatively early days of the shuttle program. Sure. You never know who will be the first, and depending on what it is, you never want to be the first. And little did those seven people know that on the morning of Tuesday, January 28th, they would become the first American astronauts to die while in flight aboard a spacecraft in front of millions of witnesses. That was part one. Wow. Yeah, it's uh, when you get to know the people a little bit better, it makes it it makes it more personal because mm-hmm. we don't know people like this in our lives. We don't know any astronauts, <laughs> right? But I mean, you come across people that you're just like they make you feel like you're really lazy. But... Yes, I know what you mean. The the maybe yeah. the more productive way to think about it is just like there are just people who are extraordinary in some way, and it's like. That's it's a double-edged sword, you know. A lot of, of times, extraordinary people like either do something that ends up being. I mean, even though all these people flew to space safely, like it's still a risk, and they they took a big risk as part of their extraordinary lives um, for good reasons, for good motivations. You know, I'm not saying anything like that, but and also like there's a lot of pressure in being an extraordinary person, and sure. there's. I mean, I know it's difficult. (laughs) (laughs) I kid, because of course, but, you know, it's, it's just, it's more that, you know, there are just some people who are built for certain things. And these were people who just knew what they were built for and they found it. And I mean, even I think obviously all the astronauts, all the career astronauts, but even Krista, I think she was built to be a teacher. And how many teachers do you meet? And and the answer is a lot. It's it's really cool. Like who are so damn good at what they do mm-hmm. for it's, no it's, glory. It's most of them. <laughs> Yes, it, it is most of them. Because that's why they do it, because they're good at it. Well, because and they believe in it. Because they believe in it. I think that's exactly what it is. And that's... It's that, it's that mixture of both. They believe in it mm-hmm. and they're good at it. And it's, it's the Challenger was an interesting mix of like career people who are extraordinary, extraordinary because that's the career they chose, you know, the, mm-hmm. that they or they are, their career is indicative of their how they're extraordinary and then you have sort of an extraordinary person in an every person way right there are there are thousands of teachers with the heart of krista mcauliffe right who are trying and want to help and care about their kids and um i mean like how many we know so many teachers and they care which is why it's so devastating the shit that happens to <laughs> yeah, them on a daily basis. Makes it you know, hard to know them especially sometimes. in the state of North Carolina, Jesus yeah. Christ. So it's just this was se- these were seven extraordinary people in yes. various ways. They were incredibly extraordinary, and um, and then there's Reagan who just should have been the sole person aboard that spaceship. <laughs> All I'm saying. And I'm gonna guess we're gonna get into more capitalism next week and in the following week. You know what? I haven't even finished them, oh, so okay. we will see. We'll see. I just, I just think that I will never turn down an opportunity to say that Reagan's an asshole. So. I mean, agreed. Reagan is an asshole, and I'm pretty sure I can't actually piss on his grave because it's probably secured. Probably is. Yeah. I bet they have like 
Secret Service guards or some shit. Or like an electric fence or something like that that you can't see. Like an invisible one. God, if I knew I had like a week to live, maybe that's what (laughs) I would attempt to take. I don't know. All right, well, that was... (laughs) (laughs) Wait, what was the topic? (laughs) No, but I mean, we've been wanting to do this for a while. Yeah. Yeah, again, that... Wanting, not wanting, right? I think that's part of it, too, is that... Like, this is such a big topic... What else can we say about it? And also, it fucking sucks. That's terrible. Especially, like, I know I set us up for how much this will suck by humanizing every single one of these people. Mm-hmm. Like, the more you know about these people, the more you're uh, like, this sucks so bad. Yeah, but that's what makes it human. And also, their friends and family didn't get to... They all knew to, each other. Well, they didn't get to opt out no. of knowing how extraordinary these people were, so we shouldn't either. Right. We shouldn't. And, yeah, it sucks. It sucks worse for them. And yes. it sucks worse for their families. I mean, and a lot of them had little kids. Like, um, I think most of them had, like, school-age children. Sure. For the most part. Um, I think maybe... All kids around, like, our age now. Like Yeah, you know. right? Yeah, I think maybe Dick Scobie had, like, his son may have been a teenager, something mm. like that. But still, they were, yeah. And, and they're... Spouses and kids got to see it all happen in person. So if we can't handle a little bit of a bummer Mm -hmm. because of how much this is shitty, then, you know, we should because they handle a whole lot worse than that. Yes. Well, that's a a good way to end it. Is it? It is. It is. Speaking of, you know, their, their family members, of course. Yeah. So that was Challenger Part 1, The Ultimate Field Trip. This has been another episode of All Bad Things. I'm David. I'm Rachel. We'll see you next week.